Hello, I'm Andrew Suskind, and I'm a psychotherapist based in Los Angeles, specializing in trauma and addiction. Welcome to our podcast, which is called It's Not About the Sex, also the name of my recent book. Here we focus on all topics related to compulsive sexual behavior, often referred to as sex addiction. In particular, we explore ways to build long-term sustainable recovery. Our intention is to offer fresh viewpoints, brand new perspectives, and practical tools toward living a deeply connected life. Let's get started. Today we're going to be turning the tables, and I'm actually going to be talking about my recent project, as well as why this recent project of mine means so much to me. Today I have an old friend of mine, Sue Merlino, who will be interviewing me and part of our podcast as we look at sexual addiction. Great. Well, let's get started. Um, the first question I have is that a lot of people don't really understand what sex addiction is all about. Uh, can you break that down for us a little bit? Of course. I think of it in three ways. The first piece is that it's very obsessive to the point where it can be all-consuming. Sometimes the thoughts are 24-7, thoughts of, of hunting for sex, thoughts of planning for sex, and thoughts of having sex. The second piece is that it becomes out of control. Oftentimes, people will say to me that they want to stop, but they really can't. And that's one of the hallmarks of sex addiction. And third, there are consequences involved with sex addiction. It's progressively worse to the point where people lose relationships, they lose jobs, they sometimes have legal problems, and sometimes get diseases of various kinds. So why do you use so many different terms? Sex addiction, compulsive sex, out of control sexual behaviors, problematic sex? This one is a bit controversial, but I really don't like the term sex addiction. It's been around for a long, long time, and it's descriptive in some ways, but it doesn't tell everything that I believe goes into compulsive sex. So the reason why sex addiction has been around all this time is because it was coined back in the late 70s and 80s, and it was a term that stuck. But sometimes it can be shaming, it can be pigeonholing, it can even be stigmatizing. And I don't believe that compulsive sexual behavior is actually a disease or an illness. I believe that compulsive sex, the term compulsive sex, is more descriptive. It has more, it's more about what somebody is doing out there with their sexual habits. And it doesn't stigmatize, it's just an observation and it helps people realize, oh, okay, so this is way too much, or, or this is out of control, or, or my life is, is spinning out to the point where I'm having really bad consequences as a result. All right, you state that uh, sexual compulsivity is not about the sex. It's actually about brokenheartedness. So what do you mean about brokenheartedness? Well... This actually comes from personal and professional experience. So I think of brokenheartedness 
as the pain from childhood. Sometimes it's trauma, such as abuse or neglect. Sometimes it's just not getting the kind of nurturing or, or love that a child deserves. Sometimes it's about bullying, which can also be quite traumatizing when somebody doesn't feel safe. So all of those things are really examples of how a child has heartbreak or, or brokenheartedness. And I believe that underneath sex addiction or underneath compulsive sex is almost always some kind of heartbreak. So how is sex addiction um, an intimacy problem? Well, some of my colleagues call it an intimacy disorder. I don't use the term disorder because, again, I don't believe that it's an illness or falls neatly into what we call the medical model. Instead, I often believe that intimacy problems or intimacy impediments are really breakdowns of not knowing how to connect with others and not feeling safe or trusting or able to really feel like they can approach because of the kinds of childhood wounds that they carry with them. So on the surface, it might look to all of us simply like out of control sexual behavior, mm -hmm. but underneath it has to do with efforts or sometimes challenges and, and opportunities to really connect with others. So what are the primary goals for long-term recovery from sex addiction? Well, it really depends. I never assume that anybody walking into my office or anybody walking into a 12-step meeting has the same goals. What I do know is that it's a soul searching of what, what do I really want and desire in my life? What really matters to me? What is it that can truly make a difference in my life so that I can feel more fulfilled and more connected to others? So some of the themes that I like to think about when I hold the idea of long-term goals is that hopefully sex and intimacy can be integrated so that they're not, they're not so compartmentalized. Because when somebody's sexually compulsive, everything is compartmentalized. But oh, during the years of, of recovery and healing, hopefully that they can be integrated. Also, if somebody can learn to trust and rely on reli emotionally reliable people, that's a fantastic uh, healer because our nervous system actually responds to that and feels better when we have reliable people in our lives. And then, of course, to continue with the idea of connection, if we can really connect to ourselves on a deeper level, if we can connect to others who we really enjoy in our lives, and if we can connect to a higher power or a universal power that's larger than ourselves, that's really where the, the larger meaningful connection comes into play. Okay, so springboarding off of that meaningful connection is a word that I've heard a lot here. Can you expand a little bit more on um, what that is? Sure. So meaningful connection to me is, is really the heart of recovery. It's really the heart of getting some kind of foundation and some kind of 
traction in one's recovery. So what I always say is that it's vital to find your people, whether it be friends like Yusu, or whether it be family, or whether it be colleagues, or somebody at a 12-step meeting. There, there's really going to be your people, and then there's the rest of the world. So it's your job in life to find your people. Now, in program, for those who are interested in 12-step support, and I highly recommend that, that happens through attending meetings regularly, seeing the same people over and over, eventually becoming a sponsor to somebody who's new in program, having a sponsor yourself, and working the steps over and over, as well as something that I hold dear to my own recovery, which is going to 12-step retreats. So what we're really talking about is community. And so community can come in lots of forms, but it usually happens with various types of people that really are like-minded and are cut from the same cloth. And so to, to end my diatribe on meaningful connection, when I'm connected to all of these things, all of these things that I just mentioned, my, my life goes smoother. It really does. It's interesting. It's when I'm connected to, to all of those people and, and um, those in my life who really believe in me sometimes more than I believe in myself, my life just goes smoother. But if I'm disconnected from any of those supports, chances are things are going to get bumpy. And that's really a litmus test that I always think about. So you focus on relationships as part of a healing element for sex addicts. What makes the relationships so vital? Well, relationships are, are not just about spending time with other people. What I'm really talking about when I'm discussing relationships is establishing deeper contact with other people in, in my life. That's when I feel nourished, it's when I feel like I'm seen and understood in the world. And, and it's something I've done since I was a kid. I, I've been called a heat-seeking missile in, in the past. So what we know nowadays, which is so fantastic with all the brain research out there, is that we're biologically wired for connection. So we thrive when we have real authentic connection around us. And like I said before, we actually are more regulated and feel more at peace on the inside when we know that we have a posse around us that, that really cares about us. And so being a lone ranger out there and a lot of folks who are out there compulsive, addictive in various ways, certainly sexually, become lone rangers uh, because it's just so isolating and it's really against our biology to be Lone Rangers. So whatever we can do to become more a part of, uh, Brene Brown might call that true belonging, uh, that's really where, where things accelerate. Let's go back to something you mentioned earlier about childhood trauma. Um, how does that relate to sex addiction? This is another controversy because there was a time back in the late 80s or early 90s when I was in grad school 
that I was actually told that all addicts had some kind of traumatic background, something in their past that was related or correlated with their addiction. And what we've learned today is that that's not always the case. I'll give you a quick example. So let's say uh, a teenager gets involved with porn and is using porn multiple hours each day and really gets lost in it and, and numbs out with it. They may have had a childhood that was kind of on the normal range, but what happens sometimes is they stumble upon porn, the brain centers start to fire, and they become addicted. You know, they're compulsively using porn. So it may not be related to trauma in the, in the childhood, or it may very well be related to childhood pain. So sometimes it looks more visible in terms of trauma, whether it be physical abuse or being bullied or something along those lines. But what we also know is that verbal abuse and neglect and feeling unlovable and being criticized is just as wounding and invisible and, and leaves somebody more, more um, vulnerable to becoming sexually compulsive. And the last thing I'll say about that is that there's also a predisposition for addiction that we're still learning about in terms of what we're born with. So there can be a genetic predisposition just to add another layer to this <laughs> particular topic. Anything goes almost. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> That's true. It's, it's hard to know what normal childhood is. I don't think any parent really knows how to parent. You know, it's, it's difficult to kind of lump it all into that. Um, all right, so you do have a chapter. Congratulations on your book. Thank you. It's very exciting. Um, and the chapter, uh, one of the chapters is called Regulating the Nervous System. So how does this apply to sex addiction recovery? So I'm super excited to share in the book about the nervous system because there was a time not that long ago when I had no clue how the nervous system influenced addiction or, or compulsive sex of, of any kind. But what I do know now is that we are either regulated or dysregulated. So we're regulated when we feel more like ourselves, when we feel more at peace, when we feel more connected to the world. And we feel dysregulated, for instance, when we're upset about a fight we had with our parent or when we're feeling disconnected or depressed because we haven't had much luck um, making friends or finding uh, a significant other. And what I wanna say about this is without a regulated nervous system, we all are vulnerable to relapse or slips or just feeling crappy. And so, we feel more resilient, we feel more resourceful, we feel more buoyant in ourselves when we're regulated. And so regulation is actually a practice. It's something that starts with the awareness of when are we regulated, when are we not. And then there's the daily practice of regulation, which can be doing things like yoga 
or deep breathing or using a relaxation app. But definitely it takes some attention to our nervous system and to notice when we're actually feeling more like ourselves because when somebody is involved in compulsive sex, they're so used to not feeling like themselves and feeling dysregulated that they sometimes don't even know what it's like to be able to connect. And, and that's the last thing I'll say about this is that when we're regulated in our nervous system, we can actually f connect more deeply to those who care about us and who love us. And so that's all part of the cycle of healing. It sounds like it's a win-win for everybody. I hope so, as long as we pay attention to it. Because I know at one time, I, I would really only pay attention to thoughts and feelings. That was how right. I was trained originally. Right. And regulating the nervous system is all about paying attention to the body and to the sensations and really paying attention to those parts of, and of who we are. And taking the time. Make that time available for yourself, right? Self-care is so important in all of this. Right. I, I would even go a step further and, and say that as a recovering addict or a recovering compulsive person, it's it's really about impeccable self-care. It's a lifestyle change is, yeah. that takes daily attention. And I think that's why the 12-step program really pays attention to what are the tools that are going to create sustainable sobriety. One of my, just an aside, one of my favorite things to do is lie on the floor on my back and put my feet up on a chair. I call that my trip to Tahiti because mm -hmm. it just resets your nervous system um, and puts you just so at ease. I, if you only do it for five minutes, it mm -hmm. really is a good little reset. And I just put that in my toolbox of things to do. So for those therapists listening to this podcast, in between clients, that's a fantastic tool to Give yourself those five minutes just to go to Tahiti, like Sue just <laughs> said. So it sounds like you take a strengths-based approach to addiction recovery. So how do, you, how do the themes of positive psychology support those in recovery? I could talk about this for <laughs> quite a while, but positive psychology is all about leveraging one's strength. So instead of looking at what's wrong, it, look at, it looks at what's right, and it looks at themes such as forgiveness and gratitude and resourcefulness and flow and, and, and ties them all together in looking at life from a future-focused, strengths-based, values-driven approach to healing. And so for those who are in 12-step or in any kind of recovery from any type of, of past trauma or past addictive compulsive behaviors, it's really meant to look at what, what, gives my, what gives me a reason to wake up in the morning. And many clients of mine, many of my friends in, in the 12-step world sometimes lose track of what, what really gives me uh, a reason to wake up in the morning. And so it's, it's really very existential in the sense that there's a lot of soul searching that goes on to determine what is my purpose? What, what, what gives my life meaning? What, what do I really, really want from my life? And how do I start looking at simple ways of moving in that direction? 
So there's a lot of work involved in all of this. There is a lot of work, but what I recommend to all of us, including myself, is to put one foot in front of the other, literally, one foot in front of the other, and, and let go of the results. Because I try not to get too future focused, right. but at the same time, I, I, I hopefully want to start developing a vision of what would really be fun and, and revitalizing and hopefully you know, something that will really um, sustain me. I mean, this, this recent book that I wrote was an example of that. It was a long project, but it was something that I was passionate about and that I continue to be passionate about and part of what brings us here today. Can I just um, go back to one of the things you mentioned in here that I'd just like to explore a little bit? Please. Um, so values-driven it's different than saying goal-driven. So mm -hmm. do you actually put a value on something? Or is and can you describe that a little bit? The simplest way that I look at values, because I think values sometimes gets misunderstood. So we all have core values. And, and the question I always ask is, what matters most to you? Not to your parents, not to your kids not to your friends, but what matters most to you? And if you can ask yourself that question, and sometimes it's, it's more collaborative when you have a coach to be able to do that with, or a therapist even, but to really start to get clarity on what, what truly matters most. So for instance, for me, it's all about relationships. Friends and family are at the top. But I'm also very interested for myself in, in contribution. You know, I want to contribute somehow in whatever form that takes. And I also believe in community and, and expanding community and finding community that is, is going to be a place of true belonging for me. So everyone defines for themselves what core values really mean. But once you know your values, once you're really grounded in what your values are, then you can build some goals based on those values. You don't want to just jump into goals too quickly because then you're not really looking at what the foundation of them right. truly is. There's got to be something underneath that. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, thanks for explaining that. Sure. Um, so what makes individuals vulnerable to slips or relapse? Right, and I, I specifically wanted to talk about this today because slips and relapse are part of recovery, especially in sexual, sexual addiction recovery. It's generally not a linear progression. It's, it's something that has a lot of texture and a lot of sometimes a lot of zigzagging to, to kind of find traction and direction. But what I find is that there's certain relapse triggers that are, are most prevalent. Like I talked about before, if the nervous system is dysregulated for prolonged periods of time, that's definitely a, a relapse trigger. If someone becomes disconnected from their uh, reliable relationships and becomes the Lone Ranger, relapse trigger. If they have unresolved shame, or unresolved grief, relapse triggers. And lastly, there's something in 12-step program about being rigorously honest. 
And what they're really saying is if you're able to stay transparent with who you are and, and express yourself in, in that way with others, that chances are you're not going to be as, as uh, vulnerable to relapse. But if you keep secrets or keep things compartmentalized, then it's definitely a relapse trigger. And there's many more, but those are just a few that are, uh, seem to rise to the top. Well, thank you so much, Andrew, for answering my little questions and your big questions. It was great having this chat. I enjoyed speaking with you today, Sue. Thank you so much for being with me. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with my friend, Sue Merlino. And please tune in next time for further conversations related to It's Not About the Sex.